Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. Today is Saturday, September 29th, and joining me in the studio today are Ilan Martin. Hello, everyone. And Harrison Cayley. Hi, everyone. And as usual, I am Corey Schenk. Uh, today we're discussing Lee Daniel Kravitz's book, The Strange Contagion, Inside the Surprising Science of Infectious Behaviors and Viral Emotions, and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. Now, for a little bit of background, uh, the science writer Lee Kravitz and his wife moved to Palo Alto, California in 2009. They were expecting a baby boy, and when they moved there, they were shocked, they and the community, when a cluster of suicides struck the city. Lee set out to investigate why several children, uh, strangers to one another, committed suicide by diving in front of a moving train. Now, suicide clusters are defined by the CDC as three or more suicides in close proximity in regards to time and space. The first cluster struck Palo Alto in the spring of 2009, and a second one took place between October 2000 and March uh, 2015, during which four more Palo Alto Unified School District students took their own lives. However, Palo Alto was just one part of a much larger cluster occurring. What the Atlantic termed the Silicon Valley suicides resulted in the deaths of 232 youths throughout Santa Clara County from about 2003 to 2015. The CDC found that mental health problems, recent crises, and problems at school were major factors in the suicides. They were also much more likely to have identified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual. But what Lee offers as an explanation as he dives in is a strange contagion of emotions, ideas, and behaviors that were not only responsible for this suicide epidemic, but many other strange emotional epidemics throughout history. In discussions with Nicholas Christakis at Yale's Human Nature Lab, he sets out evidence for the contagious nature of, of human emotions. He travels to Stanford and speaks with Al Bandura, head of the Social Learning Research Center, and learns how we acquire new behaviors by picking up social cues from the people around us. Through Peter Galwitzer at the, at the NYU Motivation Lab, he introduces us to how goals spread, often contagiously and unconsciously. So are our goals really ours? Are our emotions and our ideas really ours? Or are they part of a strange contagion that sweeps through the environments that we live in? We'll be discussing this and much, much more today on The Truth Perspective. So with that, I was wondering what you guys thought about this idea of social contagion and how he lays it out in the book. Did you think it was a very compelling thesis that he laid out? Well, I did. And when I, well, I was interested in this book because I heard about it in an article on gender dysphoria. And so that kind of sparked my curiosity because I had never really considered that something as seemingly complex as um, like uh, a disorder or entire kind of personality thing could be part of a social cont contagion. Like I was already aware of like emotional contagions like like mass hysteria or like, you know, you smile or you laugh and other people smile or laugh or yawn, things like that. Like, so there are, are behavioral ones like, um, well, so I was aware of the, the, the kind of component, the components that go into the things that Kravitz talks about, like the emotional contagion or like a behavioral contagion where, um, you know, if you change your posture or you make a little movement, you might be able to influence people around you with those movements, especially with facial expressions like smiles and laughter, like I said. And then even like intellectual, I guess you could call it intellectual contagion, just the spreading of ideas. You see that in the media all the time where a media will or an idea will get a lot of 
play in the in the media and then people kind of adopt it as their own even though they're just adopting it because of um, repetition and of course this a similar thing in advertising and subliminals like you see something subliminally enough times like an ad for a certain product that will prime your behavior in certain ways and make you more likely to buy that product when you see it and you'll think it's maybe just an impulse or that you really want it but actually you've seen that um, maybe that logo like three times in the past you know week or so or, or longer I don't know and so that'll inf influence your behavior but here um, Kravitz was talking about something as you know seemingly complex and you know involving more aspects of your life as um, a suicide and in this article that I'd read about like gender dysphoria so that kind of struck me it's I, th I guess I hadn't really seen it discussed like that before but it seems to be fairly well accepted and uh, a common way of looking at these things so it was compelling in me to, to me because um, not just because of the case he makes for the suicide clusters but because of all the different types of phenomena that he brings into the picture um, like uh, maybe to start out with just one of them which is prob well maybe a few of them these are like the famous cases one is bulimia because bulimia didn't really exist as a disorder until what was it like 1980 or something like that and the guy who discovered it he found he had a bunch of um, like patients who were all showing the same symptoms and so he gave it this label of of bulimia and he published paper about it you know what the symptoms were how to find it or how to recognize it and diagnose it and that got published and then the um, the more kind of mainstream pop science like journals and magazines and newspapers picked up on this and so now bulimia became like a household word to a certain extent well it well eventually it did become a household word till the point where everyone knew about it and that was through cases in the media and even just publicizing the existing cases but what they what when what they found was that once it started getting media attention once people started realizing what it was more people started getting it so more people actually started getting bulimia and they did enough uh, research and study to be able to rule out that it was just um, you know more recognition of it so these weren't existing cases like it's not like all these people had bulimia from the time before bulimia there was a word for it a name for it it was actually that the number of cases skyrocketed so the conclusion that Kravitz draws from this and that others have too not only in regards to bulimia but numerous other like disorders and other phenomena is that it, it was actually the media attention it was actually becoming aware of it as a disorder that actually gave the dis well essentially gave the disorder to all these people so without the media without his paper there wouldn't have been this rise in bulimia cases and there was a similar phenomenon in the uh, in the 80s with satanic ritual abuse and in the 90s I believe with multiple personality disorder um, now with a lot of these things it's not that the that any of these disorders didn't necessarily exist at all beforehand but it, they might have been really rare like uh, multiple personality disorder like it's probably has it probably has existed for a really long time if not forever but there were never very many cases at any one time but when it started getting media attention all of a sudden you had all, uh, a whole bunch of cases of MPD 
and then once the kind of media or like once it once it wasn't as popular like in pop culture the numbers went down again so it was almost like this big cluster of bulimia cases and satanic ritual abuse accusations and uh, multiple personality disorder in the same way that there are clusters of these suicides and he even gives examples um, like well it, it's common enough that there's a name for it like there are such things as suicide clusters and he gives examples of other ones you know not uh, not directly related to Palo Alto and uh, I can't remember the details exactly but he gives one ex I think one example of some celebrity I can't remember where he was who committed suicide and in the weeks after that um, you were getting people like at least five people committing suicide a week or something. Let me just see if I can find um, find that one. Okay, yeah. So in 1984, he was an Austrian, an Austrian businessman, and he committed suicide, and that sparked a cluster that lasted for almost a year, five suicides per week. So once the newspapers started removing any mention of further suicides, because they realized they were kind of having a role in this, the more they published, the more suicides there were, then the number of copycat suicides dropped by like 80%. So uh, Kravitz writes that, the, that you know, in light of this type of phenomenon, and this goes back to the bulimia um, epidemic as well, that the news coverage shouldn't make suicide look viable or attractive to susceptible people. Um, and this would include um, like not giving details of certain types of cases, um, like not putting them on the front page, like just making it a small news items because a small news item because when it's front page news and the and it's like hyped up as like fear porn then that just sparks more copycats and it's a it's a strange phenomenon like he says in the book there's this kind of like dual aspect to awareness because on the one hand it seems that just being aware of it will actually um, make things worse because more people but by becoming aware of it more people get whatever it is that's going around. Um, but on the other hand, it seems like there's a positive aspect of awareness too, that if you know what's happening, maybe you can better protect yourself. But that might be something we'll get into a little bit later. Yeah, that uh, reminds me of something he wrote in the book about uh, one aspect of how social contagion works is through automatic attunement, through uh, you, you basically unintentionally mirror someone else's emotions, thoughts, um, and you, you register all this information in an unconscious way. So if you're, if you're uh, reading a news article that is completely factual and, you know, not, and it's not ramping up any sort of emotional information, then you're going to read it quite differently. You're going to get a different awareness of the event than you would from an, you know, a sensational article, mm -hmm. which is delivering a, a completely different message, even if it is, you know, um, you know, geared more towards prevention. And you know, but if it's if it has an element of fear and hysteria in it, it's going to want it's going to trigger that person in a way that if they're susceptible, they'll say like, "Ooh, I could get this kind of attention if I did this kind of a thing." And it's not necessarily you know conscious, as we all know that you know teenagers are you know they don't have the 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 brain the higher brain functioning to be completely conscious of what's going on within them, which is why I think that a lot of the uh, cases that we saw. Uh, just reading the book in you know recent years uh, just swept like a wildfire you know it's it's kind of crazy to think of you know a couple hundred teenagers committing suicide in such a similar um, mm -hmm. or you know just by the that same kind of uh, that environment that they did it in was so 
highly geared towards prevention. You know, it was in Silicon Valley. It's all of these people who are, you know, they're social justice warriors. They have all of these different prevention uh, centers. They have all these different counselors. There's all these different movements. But at the same time, it's like on one level, that is only, that is not uh, actually the kind of prevention that you want if you're actually trying to get to the root of the, mm -hmm. of the contagion. Right, and I well, think he, well, just one thing, Alana, I think he even makes clear that some of those um, interventions they make can be, um, can potentially be harmful in and of themselves, because if we don't know what the cause is, it could be that these things are actually reinforcing the, like, the ideas that might make, like, suicide clusters a thing. So by by introducing all of these, like, safety measures and all of these therapists that come in, you know, maybe they have a good effect for some, but at the same time, it reinforces the idea that they need protection and that they need, and that there is something wrong. And so that will just let the the cause, the emotional and, like, uh, and thought-based cause continue and, you know, potentially lead to even more suicides. Mm -hmm. yeah, I was just thinking that the uh, the, the particular environment and culture uh, that Palo Alto and Silicon Valley um, produce uh, made it kind of rife for these young kids to be vulnerable to begin with in a sense because of the incredible amounts of what he calls uh, spoken and unspoken um, pressures uh, to perform. Uh, all of these kids uh, who may have wonderful supportive families, uh, great classes, great environment, opportunity for advancement, um, are experiencing a kind of uh, unspoken pressure to achieve, to be a part of this environment of uh, geniuses that uh, are innovating and coming up with new businesses and technologies. And uh, this has been the, the history and the culture of the area for, for decades, he points out. So there is a kind of firmament, a substratum, a, a background, a context of expectation and stress that is by any standard abnormal uh, for most counties and areas and schools and regions in the U.S. that I think left these kids open to a vulnerability mm -hmm. uh, that once triggered by this first suicide uh, spread out and continued for quite a few years. Yeah, and, and this is the way that they that all of these contagions seem to work. Like, um, I can't remember if he gets into school shootings at all. I think he might just mention it briefly, but um, there, uh, I started reading a book uh, last week called, or a week or two ago, called Columbine by Dave Cullen, uh, who's a a journalist who'd covered the Columbine shootings for years, like he was there right at the beginning, and he, he followed the story for like 10 years. So he wrote a book just basically putting it all together. And right in the beginning, I just want to read a couple paragraphs, um, because Columbine was in uh, April of 1999. <clears throat> and um, in this kind of background here, I'll just read this. He says, a terrifying, a terrifying affliction had infested America's small towns and suburbs, the school shooter. We knew it because we had seen it on TV. We had read about it in the papers. It had materialized inexplicably two years before. In February 1997, a 16-year-old in remote Bethel, Alaska, brought a shotgun to, to high school and opened fire, 
He killed the principal and a student and injured two others. In October, another boy shot up his school, this time in Pearl, Mississippi. Two dead students, seven wounded. Two more sprees erupted in December in remote locales. West Paducah, Kentucky, and Stamps, Arkansas. Seven were dead by the end of the year, 16 wounded. The following year was worse. 10 dead, 35 wounded, in five separate incidents. The violence intensified in the springtime as the school year came to a close. Shooting season, they began to call it. The perpetrator was always a white boy, always a teenager, in a placid town few had ever heard of. Most of the, scooter, most of the shooters acted alone. Each attack erupted unexpectedly and ended quickly, so TV never caught the turmoil. The nation watched the aftermaths, endless scenes of schools surrounded by ambulances, overrun by cops, hemorrhaging terrified children. By graduation day 1998, it, was like, it felt like a full-blown epidemic. With each escalation, small towns in suburbia grew a little more tense. City schools had been armed camps for ages, but the suburbs were supposed to be safe. The public was riveted. The panic was real. But was it warranted? It could, have, it could happen any place, became the refrain. But it doesn't happen any place, Justice Policy Institute Director Vincent Schiraldi argued in the Washington Post, and it rarely happens at all. A New York Times editorial made the same point. CDC data pegged a child's chances of dying at school at one in a million and holding. The trend was actually steady to downward, depending on how far back you looked. But it was new to middle-class white parents. Each fresh horror left millions shaking their heads, wondering when the next outcast would strike. And then, nothing. During the entire 1998 to 1999 school year, not a single shooter emerged. So he doesn't talk about it there, and he doesn't get into it, but... Um, Right there you can see the, the kind of features of a social contagion, as Kravitz mentions. They, they came in waves, so there was the first, the first shooter, um, the, the first school shooter in 1997, and that, and that sparked a whole bunch of kids all over the states to do similar things. Then it happened again the next year, to the point where they called it shooting season. But then the next year, there, there, were, there was no instigator, there was no first, um, first spark to set off all these other kids. And then, um, he doesn't get into it, and I, I forgot to look it up, but I'm, I'm wondering if there, were, um, if there were any immediate copycats after the Columbine. I can't remember for sure. But now we see that school shooters have become a phenomenon like in and of themselves to the point where a lot of the school shooters that, uh, that go on these rampages, they actually admire the, like, um, uh, Eric Harris and, and uh, Dylan Klebold. They like they admire them, and they want to get like a higher kill count. They want to like they they uh, uh, they idolize these guys and want to like use them as models for for their own shootings. So it, it's become like a cultural phenomenon where, um, um, like you were saying, Elon, it's like there there's a con an existing condition, there's an existing like mindset, and when you have that first. Um, that first person to to kind of do the deed, then that sets off all of these other guys that are like seemingly just waiting for that spark. And whatever it is that triggers them does trigger them. And um, at least with the school shootings, it seems now that it's just um, <clears throat> like fairly regular. I don't know if the stats, well, actually I think the stats are still steady. Um, I think I read an article to that effect recently that like, it's not that like things aren't getting super worse and in fact the media 
um, actually are stoking the fear more than they should because there was this one um, one statistic that a whole bunch of newspapers have been citing like this um, the statistic for like the number of school shooters in like the last 10 years or something and it turns out that they were they're not even the number that they're giving is fake news essentially the number <laughs> yep. includes um, things that aren't school shooters this will include anyone like on school grounds or like in the vicinity of a school who like has a weapon or discharges a weapon so this can even be like a shooting class that's on school grounds where someone just misfires their weapon or like you know a teacher who has a, a gun at school who accidentally discharges it like in the parking lot or something and you know those aren't school shooters a school shooter is like the, you know like Cullen just said in the passage that I wrote it's someone that goes to school with the intention of killing people and um, they could be targeted or it could be just um, indiscriminate like it was in Columbine but the the actual numbers are inflated by the media and that probably just even makes things worse and it, it probably um, influences um, influences kids to become school shooters when they might not otherwise of course there's more factors than that but but that's an important one yeah. mm -hmm. oh I think it's it, there's something interesting about the the contagion itself because there's uh, there, you know, you have positive emotions and positive things are contagious, but they have such a different nature, such a different character, that we are we're drawn much more to these these uh, mass outbreaks of hysteria and the and the ways that they kind of uh, they shape society. And it really, when you look at the complexity of it, it seems to me like you you have to factor in like a a, a like a society's like emotional kind of geography the um, their ideas and you know how they respond to stress and threats and just the general level of you know kind of uh, confusion tolerance that that people have and one thing that I was thinking about when we were discussing or when I was reading about uh, the the suicide clusters in Silicon Valley was you know the time which was around 2009 through till 2016 and the fact that um, you know they were like the the some of the oldest members of the the I generation, uh, you know those kids who were born in 1995 or later, and who were basically their, their whole lives all they've known is the the internet. You know they had an Instagram page before they started high school. You know they're on Facebook, and uh, you know the iPhone. Uh, they all you know two out of three I think as the statistic has iPhones by now. And you know you're looking at this uh, this group and the kind of vulnerabilities that they would face uh, in in terms of being in constant contact with their with their peers, being constantly judged, and the kind of the dumbing down that this easy access to you know fake news and to fake thrills and everything that 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 has and it seemed to me like that was really and you know the fact that they are in silicon valley they're in the mm -hmm. ground zero mm -hmm. and the, you know that's what their parents do that's what's glorified that you know just the idea that this was really setting them up um for a culture uh, that was that was open to a contagion of a negative kind of a, you know a very nasty kind that that erupted in you know the these suicide uh, spikes that we've seen in even though it's it has happened throughout history but i'd imagine that if you look through history you know you have to see some amount of the um that hystericization process going on um and in in terms of how people cope with the contagion itself because it's, it seems to me like it's just like a flu outbreak or something else if you know 
um, if you have control over your emotions, if people are relatively rational, you know, you, you're able to combat these uh, outbreaks as they rise up. But if you don't, then they flare up into these massive, gnarly, you know, uh, uh, just uh, outbreaks. And it reminded me of that. Uh, if you guys remember the that uh, the but the racist banana peel incident. And back in, I think it was in August 2017, or it was, it was at the University of uh, Mississippi, there was this uh, fraternity retreat that ended early because a student threw his banana peel away in a tree, and some of the students who saw it got frightened and thought it was a sign of uh, the KKK or white supremacy, and they thought it was a threat that they were all going to be killed. And so then what began as an instant retreat, and even after the student who threw his banana peel up there said that he didn't mean it in any such way, that he was just, there wasn't a trash can, he just threw it up into the tree, um, they ended up shutting down the retreat and having a whole, like, safe space um, <laughs> getaway so that they could talk about their feelings and, and what it meant for race relations on campus. And, you know, so, I mean, you think of that, uh, that, that banana peel, you know, that banana peel was symbolic for these kids because apparently in another uh, university at some other place at some other time there were banana peel banana peels that were hung from trees as a sign of you know racism and these kids automatically that just triggered the contagion spread and then pretty soon you have you know calls for more racial justice and sensitivity training at the at a, at this campus and it's it's absolutely bizarre how contagious and how fast this this thing spreads. Well, that kind of brings home the point that uh, social contagion is very specific to a given time and place, and the mindset of the people that um, have been subject to their own kind of self-forming uh, social contagion and hysteria. Um, so Kravitz points out that there is a, I forget which town it is, somewhere in the Midwest, that in 2004, a few years after 9-11, suddenly became gripped with the fear of terrorism. And Homeland Security, the CIA, the FBI came to the town to work with the people, allay their fears, and even train some of them in uh, a kind of uh, anti-terrorist uh, maneuvering. And Did they have Iran Morhad? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they should have. That, that's a reference to uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's newest incarnation, uh, which, uh, which is quite funny. So thanks for that, Harrison. This is actually a, a, a pretty heavy topic uh, in, some, in some ways. Um, and we can get back to some of the points you made earlier, Corey, about a, a kind of positive pro-social uh, contagion that exists as well. But just to get back for a moment to the, the idea that um, there are uh, hysterical outcroppings or, or um, experiences among groups of people that are very specific to their own predispositions uh, seems... Uh, to be a, an important thing here because uh, throughout this book I, I just kept thinking of the vehement vitriolic hatred uh, and expressions of uh, hysteria that we've been seeing projected against Donald Trump in the US uh, to name just one of the things that we're seeing nowadays and how this has formed a 
kind of hysterical phenomenon that almost has no redress, almost has no um, ability to be um, kind of stopped or, or held back in any way. It, it's gone to such, a, to such lengths that uh, the irrationality that, that we're seeing on display at this time is, is I think, one of, the, one of the worst I've seen in my lifetime, if not one of the worst. Um, so uh, this, this topic that we're discussing has all kinds of uh, implications. And I, I don't, one of, the, one of the points that uh, Kravitz kind of drives home in his own thinking on the suicides in Palo Alto is that there are many ways that social contagion have been addressed. Uh, some of them successful in some contexts and some successful in others and that it, it really, there is no one-size-fits-all solution to any of them, uh, that each one has to be taken for its own, um, its own life, its own existence uh, and, and special properties before it can be correctly uh, addressed. Yeah, well, I wanted to take off on one thing you just said there about how, uh, specifically the reference to the vitriol directed at Donald Trump, you can see a similar thing with any kind of uh, mass public demonization of uh, like an outsider or a foreign leader, like it's been going on against uh, Vladimir Putin for years. And anytime that the U.S. has a, a big enemy, you know, the, it's the same thing. The people, the, the general public just kind of adopts the mentality, the, um, the whole kind of emotional intellectual picture as if it's their own. They adopt it for themselves without any kind of uh, modification or critical thinking. It's just that thought becomes their thought. And it's like, it was one of the best... Um, best things that made that clear for me, even though, you know, I, I'd been thinking about that in, in those terms for years, actually, was seeing um, uh, my, like, 12-year-old nephew telling me how much he hates Donald Trump when, like, <laughs> he knows nothing about politics, right? He's a 12-year-old <laughs> kid that's just obsessed with superheroes, but just from whatever he manages to see on the news, maybe from the few things that he manages, manages to hear from the adults, um, and he's a Canadian, mind you, so, you know, Donald Trump isn't even his president, but there's, like, media saturation even in Canada f with Donald Trump. Um, like, he's got very strong opinions on Donald, Donald Trump when he has zero political awareness. And you can just, you can scale that up, and really most people, I'd say even in the, you know, elite establishment, they are... Um, no different than, you know, a, a totally unaware 12-year-old. They don't think about why they believe what they believe and the ideas that they that they have, like the memes, the, well, meme is, not internet memes, but uh, like Dawkins memes, um, just the, the like, thought complexes, the, the collection of opinions and beliefs and uh, hatreds and... Um, and, well, and likes, they all come fully formed and they're just adopted without any questioning, without any critical thinking. And that's what you have in the media. So that's why I've, you know, we've had several conversations here and on uh, behind the headlines, you know, in the past year or two about, you know, what is behind the anti-Russian sentiment, for instance, in, in the American establishment. 
And is it like a, a vast conspiracy or is it really that these people believe it? Well, I think for the most part, like for the vast majority of people, they actually believe it. And it's because of this social contagion phenomenon. They are, they are part of a group and it's this, it's this group think, group think type mentality too. It's the mob mentality. Everyone else believes it, so they believe it. And it, um, well, and you can see it on both sides too. And it's not just the states either. It happens in every country. So you have, like, in in any country, you can find the the people within that country will rally around the dominant ideas, um, especially in a time of war. And well, that leads me to one other thing. Um, the uh, he's got Kravitz has a discussion on hysteria in the book. So I found that this book was actually a really good supplement to the chapter in Ponderology on hysteria, the cycle of hysteria, and. Um, one of the things that Kravitz points out is that um, he he makes a connection between the the paranoia and anxieties with periods of rapid social and economic changes. So in the nineteenth in nineteenth century Europe, for instance, twenty percent of French people were sent to institutions for hysteria, and uh, he writes that hysteria. According to Bernheim, who's a researcher, psychologist, maybe um, takes on the qualities of a social contagion, with the ability to manifest and spread over populations by way of mere suggestion. So, like hysteria is also an example of a uh, of a social contagion. You know, as we've said already on the show today, um, and there's a connection. Not only, well, not only is it specifically tied and catered to the unique mentality and conditions of the group in question, like you were saying, Alon. It's also um, catered to like that specific time. Um, and this is what Lobachevsky got into, is that there's like a period, there's a, like a cycle to history where in a certain period there will, there will be a mass hysteria and that will open up a culture or a society to a catastrophe and it could go really bad depending on what happens and this is also the idea of the the guys that wrote the fourth turning which is that book on american history but also with reference to the history of other nations um looking through the, the like the cycles of history within american history and they identified basically like a a, a four generation cycle um, or a 90-year cycle that seems to repeat every four generations. And there's this one period of like social stagnation and, um, and then a period of crisis and catastrophe. And it seems that the, the hysteria is associated with those two you know, periods. It's the hysteria that leads to the, that, well, maybe opens up a society to, uh, to the catastrophe. And in those periods of time, you'll get these mass contagions that are spreading. Now the scary thing is that Lobachevsky thought that that um, the U.S. had reached its its peak hysteria in the 80s, um, mm -hmm. which um, but I, you know I was a baby in the 80s, so I can't directly compare. It'd be good to speak to some some people who uh, who were you know adults in the 80s and today to see <laughs> what the what the levels of hysteria were if they were comparable or if they're worse today um because if they're worse today you know that's that uh that's bad news that's what i'm saying well i wasn't an adult in the 80s but uh, i've been around for a few years and um like i was saying earlier uh, what we're what we're witnessing today is uh incomparable uh to anything else I remember, anyway, 
um, being a child of the 70s and the 80s and, and uh, somewhat of a child in the 90s. Um, but uh, speaking of um, hysteria, Harrison, there was another passage uh, here that I'd like to read from uh, Strange Contagion, which uh, speaks pretty well to how uh, it's an appeal to emotions in the way that um, people don't even realize. Anyway, what Kravitz writes is, the historian Norman Cohn writes that true believers can endow hysteria with such confidence, energy, and ruthlessness that will attract into its wake vast multitudes of people who are themselves not at all paranoid, but simply harassed, hungry, or frightened. I believe this is true. Yet to really understand mass hysteria, we have to look at the nature of human behavior, the way logical people become overwhelmed by fear and caught up in the snare of excitement, how easily we can fashion and twist frenzy, how effortlessly, effortlessly it moves from person to person, untethering the most stable of us, cracking the foundations on which we so heavily rely. Hysteria legitimizes the improbable and supersedes the logical. In so doing, it becomes a self-replicating system. A daycare crisis creates the need for an organized response. It generates jail sentences and produces media attention. It creates hysteria that reinforces the belief in a problem that never existed in the first place. The process cascades in a never-ending loop, a mirror-like recursion. Our responsibility to one another is to seek out the facts rather than so easily give in to the frenzy. And that's largely what we're missing uh, in our national debate, in our dialogue with ourselves, the facts. Uh, we're given emotional, emotionally charged information that is by design uh, injected into our awareness to cause a certain reaction, a certain response. Uh, and we're being played and manipulated in ways that, uh, that we don't realize quite often. So uh, that really calls for a level of awareness um, that um, reflects our understanding of how vulnerable we are ourselves, that, that we are um, susceptible to emotional hooks in ways that we don't even realize. Uh, and I think ultimately the value of the book is in encouraging people to reflect upon their own hooks, their own sacred cows, their own uh, emotional weaknesses, um, and to just be aware of how easy it is to fall into a trap of, of a particular ideology or, or mode of thinking that, uh, that isn't our own. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that uh, it's, it's really, it's like hypnosis. You know, it brings a new meaning to being swept away by the crowd. It's fundamentally, yeah, it's fundamentally a form of, of hypnosis. And I was, uh, I thought it was interesting that in the book he quotes Gustave Le Bon, uh, that I think he's a French philosopher, um, who he wrote, he wrote the book, The Crowd, which was kind of like the dawn of, you know, a psychological science of understanding crowds of people. And in that book, uh, he writes that the part played by the unconscious in all, in all our acts is immense, and that played by reason very small. The unconscious acts like a force still unknown. 
And just over the past few uh, episodes, we've done, you know, episodes on the genetics and DNA and, you know, the evolution. And, you know, if you, if you listen to those shows, you hear the undercurrent is that, you know, our minds or what we believe to be ourselves are made up largely of bacteria, viral DNA, uh, just so many different aspects of, of nature that have very little to do with human, with what we would call, you know, our human idea which would be the the rational animal you know if we define you know mankind in that way which is the traditional definition which is very succinct you know in the sense that we're rational uh, but you know with much more emphasis on the animal part and so in the in the book uh, Levon talks about the characteristics of psychological crowds, which he differentiates from you know just like a crowd of people that just gathers together to you know to it just you know they don't have any specific real relationship with one another but a psychological crowd um has a number of different uh factors involved so the individuals who that compose it so he says that however like or unlike be their mode of life their occupations their character or their intelligence the fact that they have been transformed into, into a crowd puts them in possession of a sort of collective mind which makes them feel think and act in a manner quite different from that in which each individual of them would feel think and act were he in a state of isolation he writes that another one one uh, fundamental characteristic is contagion which is a, a phenomenon which it is easy to establish the presence of but is not quite easy to explain and i think that's one of the things that you get a sense of throughout the book is that by the time the book is done uh, lee kravitz has basically said you know i we can't fight this you know it's this thing is so much bigger than all of us it's time to just pack our bags and move to the next town um but yeah, that's contagion is just one of the hypnotic elements in a crowd that's triggered by by a crowd's suggestibility. Because as Gustave Lebon would say, you know, the crowd is is a lower level on our evolutionary stage. Or when we get together in a psychological crowd um, that's based that's you know charged with this infectious material, negative infectious material, then we are much more likely to be that much more suggestible and hypnotized and to do what in our own uh, conscience we would never ever feel justified to do. And I think that when you flash forward to today, you see that, you know, I mean, he basically, it sounds like he's writing about an internet forum. It sounds like he's writing about, you know, Facebook or something. You know, it's yeah. very similar dynamics at work, except that we have children that are growing up uh, immersed in that. That is the, that is their understanding of what it means to be human is to be a part of this this kind of this kind of mob uh psychological mob mm -hmm. well and maybe one of the reasons why it seems to be so much more hysterical today than it was than than in the 80s when there was also an outbreak of hysteria is because of the internet because of the connectivity because um we are so connected with a like a a vastly larger number of people than we were even in the 80s um, where we get news 24/7 from all over the world, and um, and that all filters in, and we're we're emotionally connected with um, even like the uh, a wider circle of our close um, like companions in life, or and, and then a, a, an even wider circle of people that we aren't so close to, all because even Facebook transmits emotions. Um, there's the the Facebook study that showed that. 
um, well, various ways in which happy or sad emotions influence the people just reading on their Facebook feed. So we're, we're vastly more connected and we're mo we have more access to the emotional contagions um, that are around us. But, um, but at the same time, I think one of the big conclusions to draw from this is that, um, you know, like you've already said in so many words, is that this is pretty much one, one of the things that makes us human. Like this is a, a default mode of human behavior and, uh, and human consciousness. And when we look at it in that sense, um, it's both scary, but it's also, um, it's also, you know, the raw material we have and, and it isn't necessarily all bad. Um, so it, Maybe in a you know in a few minutes we can get into the opposite side of of emotional contagion like the the kind of solutions and the positive aspects. But before then, I just want to get a bit more into this idea of how this is basically a human trait, um, because like um, like you said, Corey, like when you like Gustav Le Bon when he's looking at the crowd, the crowd is like its own organism, and I think that any well, there's two things. The first one is that um, this is an observation that Kravitz makes in the section on one of the possible solutions to uh, social contagions, and that is like emotional intelligence. So basically, the more emotionally intelligent you are, the more you'll be aware of the feelings going on within you, and therefore you might be able to recognize that it isn't your feeling, right? This is something extrinsic to you that is influencing you and therefore you might have more control over it. But the, the, the catch in this is that he also points out that people with more emotional intelligence are actually more susceptible to social contagions. Because they, because there's, like, they, they have this um, emotional sensitivity, they will pick up on those emotions to a greater extent than the people who aren't aware of them. So there's also there's actually a greater danger as well as potentially um, a greater kind of um, mode of of mitigating the the effects. So that's a that's an interesting paradox. And then the second thing is that um, for these, when you look at it in terms of um, oh I, you know I lost my I lost my train of thought for what the second one was, but uh, I think I was going to make the point of when you look at crowds and this response that, that it's like this automatic um, attunement to the crowd that it really is um, this comes back to Dabrowski's theory of positive disintegration where he he points out that there are actually three factors to when you when you're looking at like human nature and human behavior Usually we only think about two. We traditionally call them nature and nurture. And that would be like our our biological hereditary, you know, substrate, our, our bodies, our our like primal instincts, um, just everything that kind of makes us makes us human on the, the kind of biological and animal level. And then, well, and not just that, because uh, like our, our personality structure, like the, the personality traits that we have, these are all largely heritable. So everything from the processes going on in our body to um, our psychological traits, so our susceptibilities, our proclivities, um, our talents and our weaknesses, those are all biologically determined. But there's also the, the nature angle, so this would be society. And this is really what Kravitz is discussing. He's discussing the second factor. 
These are all of the social um, influences that determine our behavior. And one of the, the kind of scary, um, scary thoughts is, um, he quotes one of the guys, you know, one of the researchers that, he's, that he talked to in the creation of this book, in the research for this book, basically said, um, I think it was the guy that did the research on priming. Um, basically the idea that if you, if you prime someone with a certain image or a certain word that, 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 ha that contains like a certain emotional valence, that will influence the people's behavior um, totally outside of their knowledge. Um, they'll think that they had the idea themselves, but really it was from the prime. They wouldn't have had this thought or done this thing if they hadn't been primed to do it. So he, this researcher basically says it's possible that, well, it seems to him that the vast majority, like he, I think he just threw out the number, like 99% of what we do is actually influenced by the primes that we see every day and throughout our lives. We basically have very little control over our own behaviors because so much of what we actually do is influenced by the people around us and just the uh, the, the the social milieu in which we find us find ourselves. This would be the media, our our families, our our friends, our social circles, our social social um, circle, and our work environment, and like advertising and movies and music and all of these things are priming us with certain like essentially subliminal messages, not intentionally for the most part. Um, it's just it's just the way life works, and this it would have been the same like ten thousand years ago or. 20,000 years ago, but we would have been in smaller groups. So these are the things that actually make groups um, kind of cohere. It gives them a, a sense of group belonging and group identity. They all kind of, um, you know, all the members of the group kind of meet halfway until they achieve kind of this level of coherence and similarity um, between all the members of the group um, because they're all attuned to all the other members in the group. Of course, it gets a bit more complicated when our circle of um, of people that we're involved with gets so big. Um, there's a lot more contradictory messages, for instance. But um, what it comes down to is that so much of our behavior is determined biologically and socially. And then uh, Dabrowski added on a third factor, and that's the, the factor that most um, scientists and researchers ignore, but which some, you know, philosophers and some psychologists and, uh, you know, religious thinkers um, talk about. And Dabrowski called that the third factor. And that's the actual factor that is the, the self-determining factor, which Dabrowski would say not even all that many people have. You know, maybe 30% have, 30, 35% have it a little bit, um, but only... You know the the fraction of humans who actually develop it to to the degree that they um, that they can override their their biological and social influences is like tiny. You know you probably couldn't even count them um, in a percentage point. I mean it's so small. But so so that's the scary thing. Um, but on the other hand, like I was saying, it's also really a factor that makes us human. And if we want to um, to kind of hijack that system, it seems like that is possible. Like it's possible to use these um, these human, like you could call them weaknesses, for other purposes. And they have been. Um, one of the examples that he gives is the the use or the, the he gives the example of like telenovelas. So these would be like um, 
soap operas in like Central and South America and in Mexico. And he gives the example of this one soap opera, this one telenovela. This was just accidental, right? So the main character in this um, this telenovela um, was, you know, uh, a character that everyone could identify with or that a lot of people did watching it, like a lot of women and housemaids and, and housewives and things like that. And this, this main character um, sewed on a... Um, what's the name of the, the sewing machine? Um, the Singer. One. Yeah, Singer sewing machine. And sales of Singer sewing machines just kind of like saw this spike and it was a, a really big spike and so all of a sudden all these people were uh, all these women were sewing with singers and these guys like noticed this phenomenon and then they actually i think they're canadian they started a program at the un eventually where they basically engineered they were basically social engineered they they engineered the scripts and the characters and the plot lines in such a way as to promote certain behaviors in like target countries. Now that sound like right away you can see that this can be used for some pretty nefarious purposes. Now what these guys were using it for that we know of was for instance like in one soap opera they did, the, the purpose that they had was to get people to um, use contraception. In, an, in another one it was to raise the literacy levels. And they both worked like they both worked pretty remarkably well that um you know enrollment in adult um literacy classes like you know shot up like several you know orders higher than orders of magnitude higher than it had been and that, and that continued even after the um the, the the telenovela wasn't on the air anymore same with contraception um, but one of the things they found is that some things worked some things didn't but the important thing was is that it couldn't be straight propaganda, right? They wouldn't have had the same effect if the show was just bad and obviously um, like moralizing to the point where they were, it was just propaganda, right? They were saying, oh, you have to use, or you should use prop, you should use contraception or you should become literate. Like people, that's not the way people work. Yeah, like you can't, um, in, in a large group of people, you can't convince people to change their behavior rationally. Like the way to actually do it is to tell a story you get them to identify with the character, to to like the character, and by by them vicariously having the experiences of that character, they will want to emulate some of those behaviors. And of course, you see that in all kinds of um, you know emulations of public figures, whether it be like uh, actors and actresses, or musicians, or um, you know people who start fads. That's um, well, and fads again are another type of social contagion. You know, it just takes one person to start it, but once enough people get on board, it becomes a fad and everyone's doing it seemingly. But with the, um, um, just this is just one example, the, the telenovelas, that it is possible to tell a story with a behavior that you want to, like, uh, bring into the mass market that will, that actually is effective. So, like I said, that can be used for very nefarious purposes, but that, and that's the moral question, right? Is it, is it right to <laughs> introduce a behavior <laughs> that you want that would be better, um, and you're doing it in such an underhanded way? Well, I, I probably in the past I would have said, I personally would have said, that, oh yeah, that's wrong. But you know, when you, over the years, and uh, you know, after reading this book, and in, in addition to others, and just thinking about it, I don't think it's so wrong, because it's not, it's not like it's, um, well, people have been doing that all the time, and that's what everyone does, even if they don't realize it. 
like whenever you're reading a novel, you're assimilating behaviors and, and traits of the characters you identify with. Um, and, and that's how you teach people, right? If you want to instill virtues in people, you have to tell them a story. And it's not like, it's not necessarily underhanded or manipulative. It's just, it's just a teaching method. And, and you could almost yeah. say that it's like the responsibility of people who can do such a thing to do such a thing for those who can't necessarily by themselves, you know, perform all these complicated historical calculations in order to understand exactly what to do, you know, that would be best for their family, for everyone. I mean, not to say that a small group of people should be, you know, yeah. judging what's the best for everyone, mm. but, you know, because that's, that's one way that that kind of plays out. But, you know, beyond that to a, a more, um, you know, like Jordan Petersonian type sense where the, the one who can speak the Logos does so and articulates right. truth in a way that others can understand it. You know, it doesn't have to be in a lecture, but like you say, if it's in a telenovela and it achieves the same spirit of truth for the well-being of, of the, the target audience, then mm -hmm. heck yeah, I think that's a, that's a great idea. I mean, that's basically what this contagion thing really kind of boils down to. Uh, he writes in, the, in a book that, um, in a sense, imitation is a kind of rational response to our own cognit cognitive limits. Each person can't know everything. With imitation, people can specialize, and the benefits of their investment in uncovering information can be spread widely when others mimic them. So it's just another way of sharing, in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... Um... One way, like another thought that came to me when I was thinking about the kind of the, the potential positive aspects or, you know, positive ways in which this works is that if you look at the, the examples of bulimia or school shootings or something like that, those are the negative examples. And what you have is you have a, a kind of um, an innovator who introduces a new, a new behavior, a new thing into the world. And it may, it may actually be an old thing, but a repurposed thing. Like, you know, people have been shooting each other ever since there's been guns. But, um, but that mode of murder had, was repurposed in the form of a school shooting. And same thing with bulimia. Like, there were eating disorders before, and there, were, there was purging before. But, you know, it hadn't necessarily achieved that level of, um, you know, diagnosable, unified disorder. Um, you know, that, that stage of of whatever whatever it is but if you look at it in terms of positive <clears throat> similar things can and do happen where you have an individual who is like the first person to introduce a new value into the world and this traditionally you know has been in the form of you know religious innovators you know the, the people around whom religions have sprung up um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Buddhism or Christianity or, um, you know, all the, all the Hindu gurus, like there's, there's some of it, well, some of them at least, there's, there's a certain something that they, that they introduce into the world that is then picked up on. And of course, you know, Paul was one of those, um, you know, Julius Caesar was too, because he introduced the concept um, and the actual practice of clemency in just a brutal culture that, um, you know, would rape, murder and enslave you know, everyone that uh, they were fighting against in warfare and then, um, um, you know, post-conscription lists and on the, on the halls of the, or on the, the doors of the, the forum in Rome to just kill all your enemies and then the, whoever did so would get a reward. I mean, it was a brutal culture to live in. 
And so it was pretty unprecedented for someone like Caesar to come along and introduce the concept of actually forgiving your enemies, giving them second and third chances, and you know, treating them as equals, as if there was something important and special about them as individuals. And then, of course, Paul did a similar thing um, with his, essentially, creation of Christianity, introducing these values of, uh, of like a real kind of um, communal living where, again, you're, you've got a group of people and you're actually treating them as, um, as if they have value inherent in themselves and that that's actually the most important thing. Um, and it's a thing that Christians kind of have forgotten over the years, I think, or at least um, a lot of them, like it's not, uh, it's definitely not a, a universal feature of Christians to, to think in that way. I mean, a lot of Christians, especially in the States, still think that if you just believe in Jesus, whatever that means, that you're saved. When that was, that's like so far out of the realm of what the early Christians were actually doing. Like that, like that, that's almost meaning, that would be almost meaningless to, to early Christians. For the early Christians, it was, okay, you've got these beliefs. Now, if you have those beliefs, then naturally you will put them into practice. And that's what actually matters. It's the putting them into practice. It's the actual behavior and it's the actual adoption of this mindset. Mm -hmm. And and what that is, and like Paul himself would say, or did say, it's using Paul himself as a model, and Paul himself was using the Christ mentality, the Christ mindset as a model. So, and what is modeling, if, you know, that's, this is exactly what we're talking about. It's a social contagion. Mm -hmm. um, and not only is it, it but, but it's a contagion that can be both, um, you know, partially second factor, but third factor as well. It can be consciously chosen. Can also just be a result of, um, you know, m melding into the group mindset. You know, if you're in, if you're in a group of people who are really virtuous and have a really good work ethic and, and behaviors and um, you know compose themselves decently, then that will rub off on you if you're open to it. Or you can, you know, it's harder, but you can make that choice on your own and do it on your own and make the willful effort to change yourself and become a, a, an actual better person in your actions, which will reflect that new mindset that you have. So that, that's the, one of the ideas I had, is just this idea of, of um, having like, people being the, the people to introduce a new value into the world in the way that um, these negative like, social contagions that are actually harmful are introduced often by like, this single cause it's like patient zero right is that the phrase in in a um, you know mass outbreaks of, of diseases mm -hmm. you've got that first patient that from which it spreads well it can also be a positive thing if the thing that's spreading is um, a you know a, a positive beneficial mindset and behavior that is um, you know good for the individual the, the family the society etc well, Kravitz gives a couple of good examples of how that, um, how that manifests. Uh, he interviews a therapist in California um, who was a sufferer of bulimia who got out of it and um, perpetuates her, her own or gives her own uh, therapy to others suffering from bulimia. Uh, basically, she attributes uh, group discussion um, and what she says is that 
each one of the participants had modeled for the other uh, the ways in which they were striving to overcome bulimia and were models for one another in the approaches that they took to get themselves better. So even though there's some information in the book that contradicts that approach, uh, she says it worked for her uh, and has worked for others she's, she's done the therapy with. Another good example, is a, example that Kravitz gives is the one of uh, the workplace environment mm -hmm. where you know you had this kind of one bad apple in a given office who had a terrible attitude and basically sucked the motivation uh, and the morale out of the office. And this was experienced once this bad apple uh, left the office for a period of time on a trip where everyone became more uh, friendly and cooperative and the whole experience of work was made into a more joyous and productive one. So uh, these are uh, examples of just within your own circle or sphere of influence um, how one can lift other people up. Um, in the first case with the uh, bulimia therapist, it was a very kind of focused and concerted and intentional uh, process of making one better um, and, and helping others to do the same. But on a kind of an unconscious level, you had that example of the, uh, the workers in the office who, once this kind of um, pathologizing uh, influence uh, was removed, were able to strengthen their own best uh, inclinations, their own uh, most constructive um, uh, desires to make the business a better one. Um, so these are the, the kinds of uh, pro-social, pro um, Kravitz calls it a companionate affection, um, where leaders are modeling for others in the way that they communicate with them. And, and that example that you gave uh, with uh, Caesar Harrison in, in treating the other as uh, v valuable, um, as an equal potentially. Uh, really come into play and, and are worthy of consideration in, in how we interact with people. Um, in my own work environment, uh, on my job, just having a friendly, open, constructive relationship with people uh, who I work with is helpful to me. I know it is. And I, uh, I like to do that as much as possible for someone else because I know how much it, it helps make my job easier. Uh, so that's just bringing it down to a level that I I know that this sort of works and, and it's something that I appreciate. Um, how much of it is modeling leadership, I, I wouldn't begin to, to estimate, but um, there's a certain amount of uh, awareness of oneself that I think is important, uh, especially where emotional intelligence is concerned, um, that can assist us in, in being better for others, uh, even when you don't feel like it, even when it's, it's something that isn't on your mind or when you're on a, in a bad mood or, or not feeling particularly helpful. It's, it's, uh, it's pushing forward in that certain direction, I think, that um, can help bring that out in others. One thing that I found really interesting about the concept of a strange contagion 
was the uh, it's I don't know of any infectious agent that isn't alive. You know, like you can be infected with like a poison or something, but you're not going to be contagious to somebody else unless you ad administer that poison to them. You know, if you have it on your hands and then you, you know, touch their face with your hands or whatever. But like a contagion has to be like a, it seems to me it's like it has to be a, a living infectious agent. And so when you look at these ideas and these thoughts and behaviors and everything and how they spread, it just, it makes it seem all the more like people are just are really just conduits for all of these different forces that go through you know that go through us and so like you're talking a lot about you know what are you a conduit for i guess at you know when you're at work or you know and just in your daily life you know if you you know you don't have to call it good leadership or that but you know is it a positive are you a and uh, a conduit for something positive you know these things i mean probably not all of them are higher than us i mean when you look at the these contagious aspects of behavior that are you know tremendously negative um you know it's clearly there are there are things that you know that we that we infect one another with that are lower but i mean can we you know how do you raise it up you know how do you become a conduit for something higher you know and that's that's really like i think like such an important part of the book that you kind of grapple with a little bit is that you know how can you be a conduit for something better than than you know these these crazy um you know narratives from the media about school shootings and you know about this and that well i think i think you raise a a very important point corey and that is that the social contagion the hysteria uh is a thing in and of itself in a certain sense um something that we've been trying to drive home here on the show uh these past number of uh, episodes is that there is a a non-material reality Mm -hmm. to life uh, not everything exists uh, through the lens of a microscope mm -hmm. um, ideas and knowledge have some amount of substance uh, that exists on a level that we that we're that we're still trying to grapple with and understand fully um, my first kind of foray in, into this was actually through a, a science fiction book called the mind parasites by colin wilson and uh, in that book, he posits that there is this kind of um, malevolent force that exists in the universe that feeds on humanity uh, through the mind, through ideas. Uh, and interestingly enough, the story begins with a suicide um, of someone who is uh, open to the idea of mind parasites existing he kind of comes upon the, the realization through his research that it's a real thing, but at the same time succumbs to its influence, which is uh, kind of what you were <laughs> relating a little earlier, Harrison, in the way that uh, people are with the highest emotional intelligence can also be the most susceptible. Um, in any case, it, it was a, a very interesting um, introduction to these ideas through fiction, um, that brought home the point that uh, thoughts are things. Social contagion and hysteria are real things. Mm -hmm. uh, they may not uh, sprout or come of um, any kind of uh, you know, evil entity per se, um, but it seems the first step in, in understanding this is to take a step back and realize, um, again, like you were saying, Harrison, you know, there, there are thoughts that 
and impressions and emotions that just may not be our own, mm -hmm. uh, that we've kind of adapted through rumination by just focusing on a particular um, idea or attitude or perspective uh, that we take on for ourselves that, that needn't be part of our makeup, uh, which brings us to the idea that we really do have to take special care to uh, prevent something from coming in, in, in a sense, um, and not allow it to become part of our thinking and part of our way of being just because we've had exposure to it. Uh, so that's where critical thinking and, and, um, and reason is, is quite important uh, because we're, as much as we'd like to think that we are, uh, in many cases we're not in control of ourselves in the sense that we've been taught. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. Are there any other uh, any other interesting things from the book or directions we can go after that? I don't know if I have anything else. No, I don't know if I have anything else either. Well then, oh well, I, yeah. I just had one more point, and maybe um. Um, you know, we could, maybe we can end the show early after this, unless you guys have something to, to say afterwards. Um, one of the things that um, that it made me think of reading this book, um, and this goes back to the the stuff I was saying about modeling behavior, and like with the example of telenovelas, even is um, it reminded me of something that um, Robin Collingwood had written in his book, The Principles of Art, and he makes a distinction in that book between um, well, it's a theory of art, so what is art and what isn't it? He distinguishes art from what he calls magic. And what he calls magic isn't necessarily what, uh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind. He calls magic anything that um, evokes an emotion in the production of a, you know, a piece of what most people might consider art. So it might be music or dance or um, theater or, um, you know, anything of that sort or ritual. Um, or myth, religion, that evokes an emotion for the purpose of um, of serving a, serving a part in the practical daily life of the people um, who encounter this you know piece of magic. So, as examples of magic, he gives um, anything from you know a religious myth um, that instills courage in you know children and adults and the people of that culture to like a military war song that um, prepares soldiers for battle, you know, uh, war drumming, for instance, or the, even the ritual of, um, you know, a ballroom dance where people are, what, what's essentially happening, happening in a dance with all its rituals uh, and um, specific behaviors that must be engaged in. It's, it's essentially a, a training ground for um, mate selection. And same same dynamic goes along with dinner manners. Like all of the all of these things are shared behaviors that um, create a culture and that make living in a group livable, and not only livable but they give it meaning. And so, in a sense, what what magic is in these forms, um, it is a, a form of that hopefully positive social contagion. Um, it is telling stories in a sense, 
um, and telling stories is just one example, but telling stories for the purpose of instilling positive values in the people that experience those stories, that read them, that see them, and that then act them out. It, so it, it is essentially, um, you know, magic is essentially what brings value into the world. And that's what Jordan Peterson has been saying for, uh, for years, um, through his study of myth, for instance, is that it's mythology that brings values in the world by, by exemplifying them and then acting as a model for the people encountering those myths to then put those myths into practice in their lives. And it can be, and often is, and probably, um, probably is as a default, an unconscious process that can also be conscious, you know, for those who are capable of that level of, you know, abstraction and self-control. But for those that aren't, and there are a lot who aren't, um, they need the story, right? They need the magic. They need the, the, the social rituals and, and stories in order to, to make those, those virtues an active part of their mental and emotional life. And so, one of the things that uh, Peterson has called for is to, you know, what we're lacking and what we need is a, a grand narrative in which to place ourselves and in which to find meaning. And Colin would argue the same thing a hundred years ago. He was saying that what, what British culture then, because you know, he was uh, a British writer, what they needed then was the same thing. They needed, uh, you know, a system of magic, and that would be... Um, um, they need a system of magic to to create the the meaning system to to give um, to give life back its its actual purpose and and uh, you know everything positive about about society that they, they needed magic because one of the things that he he'd observed back then is that the existing forms of mag magic had been stamped out now these were the folk songs and the folk beliefs and the folk practices that kind of they just um, got left behind and forgotten. And uh, this was in like the wake of industrialization. And so as, as many good things as, as, as have resulted from industrialization, a lot was lost in the process. And of course, industrialization wasn't the only thing that contributed to that. But today we find ourselves in a similar, if not worse position. Um, well, and actually reading the book, it was very similar reading his description of what um, you know, the bad things about what society was like back then. It's actually very similar, so I'm not even sure if I could say that it was worse, that it is worse now, um, because in most ways it's actually very much the same. But we're in that condition where we're lacking our grand narrative, we're lacking actual magic in the world, uh, in the sense of meaningful, um, meaningful like, you know, music and, and dances and stories and um, shared behaviors that instill that common sense of meaning that then gives individuals the meaning in their lives. So really what, you know, I guess one of the takeaway messages of the book, Strange Contagion, was the same thing, is that we really need to figure out how to make use of Strange Contagions to, uh, to get that you know, magic in life back, to get that meaning back, because that's probably, well, that is the only way that, to do it, that will have, uh, you know, as large, to have large enough effect, large enough an effect to have an effect, um, because, you know, it doesn't work just, um, you know, 
base propaganda doesn't work, just reading books doesn't work, but reading a certain type of book and seeing a certain type of propaganda can work. Uh, because, of course, you know, not all propaganda is bad. Um, propaganda, all the word means, is, you know, it comes from the from the Latin, basically means propagate. It's just, you can have truthful propaganda. It's just making widely known something that wants, that something that the person doing the propaganda wants to be known. And that's, of course, nowadays it's, it's acquired a, a negative connotation because the things that essentially governments and intelligence agencies want us to know are lies for an ulterior motive. But the same principle goes for, um, for truthful things. Like the Russians seem to have taken on the role of spreading positive propaganda in the sense of a lot of the things that they say are true um, in the political sphere and they get widespread, um, well, fairly widespread coverage of that. And, um, you know, just so happens that the Americans are the ones spreading the, the, the bad propaganda nowadays. But propaganda in its original sense, it's basically educational. And, um, but it's not just limited to propaganda either. Like I said, we need all of these things. And uh, it's just up to, you know, some creative people to actually get it done, as opposed to, you know, well, in in great distinction, in great uh, um, contrast to what we have nowadays to a large degree when you look at the, the state of, um, you know, what's considered high art or, or, you know, popular contemporary art, there, you know, isn't a lot there that is actually socially and individually meaningful. So, um, yeah, that's my final thought. So, in other words, be a good propagandist. Yeah, good or, propagandist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In all senses of the term. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening in today. Uh, join us next week as we bring you another show discussing some of the issues of our time. And do tune in to Behind the Headlines. That's tomorrow. And the Health and Wellness Show next Friday. Take care, everyone. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.